Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. <laughs> I, um, I guess I explained it away by I grew up in a small Midwestern farm town and I, I am an introvert. Most people don't really believe it, but I really am an introvert. But, yeah, but I, I grew up in a small Midwestern farm town where, you know, you, you just, whether you like it or not, I mean, you, you talk, you tell stories, you, you become sociable, you have to, it's just what, you know, so you do that for 20 years of your life and uh, you end up liking people, you end up needing people, even though you're an introvert. So yeah, I, I uh, and especially at this point in my career, I really enjoy the opportunity to reflect and yeah. with people and um, share, give back. If there's a way to give back, I, I really that's how I'm wired. So I, awesome. I welcome, the opportunity. welcome the opportunity. Well, I appreciate you being on the Rider Flex show. We'll just go ahead and keep rolling here. I'm already recording. So we'll just keep chatting and then I'll put an intro on it or clip it out or do whatever I need to later. We'll just keep going. Okay. You know, if okay. I, uh, if, yeah, if I met you at like a bar or whatever, like in the first five minutes, I would think you were in sales. <laughs> well, funny you say that, Steve, I, uh, I spent time in sales, uh, but you know the kind of the marketing side of sales more than the sales, the point of sales side. I don't think I'm a good salesman, and I don't know why I say that. Um, maybe uh, I'm an engineer. I think I'm a pretty good engineer, but uh, there's an art form to sales that an introvert, by his nature, I don't think is as naturally artful at. And uh, I work with people like Chris Pearson, and oh my yeah. gosh, I mean he's a maestro. Uh, of the conversation he's a maestro of the process of sales and it's uh, real fluid for him i don't mm -hmm. i don't see it in myself it takes <laughs> it takes more consciousness and uh, and energy for me uh than i think it's natural for someone like chris pearson so i appreciate the compliment i'll take it as a compliment <laughs> that I'm a, that I'm, a, I'm a i'm an introvert who can function as an extrovert but i i wouldn't gotcha. put myself in a sales job <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. T tell us a little bit about you know your personal life uh, early on. Uh, you give us some childhood stuff. Your parents, where you grew <laughs> up, any siblings. Why don't you tell us a little little bit about that? Go ahead. Sure, and uh, because we're you know I don't think you want this thing to be a five hour podcast. I'll make the short version of the story. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I grew up in a small midwestern town, and I'm a third generation aviator. Uh, my grandfather flew light planes off of the family farm in the cool. 1940s. My dad and my uncle were both World War II pilots in the Army Air Corps. Wow. Um, my, brother, my brother also flies. He lives in Steamboat Springs. I live, of course, on the Front Range. So flying has been in my blood since I can remember. And um, I grew up just with this wonderment about airplanes. Uh, because I'm an introvert by my nature, I had a little 
my own little laboratory where I built model airplanes as a kid. And that just built in me, that plus flying with my family, built in me just a passion for things with wings. So by the time I was in, in high school, you know, I kind of sent, sensed that I had a talent for math and science. I wanted to go in a technical direction. I did not want to farm. Uh, and really the only option in central Illinois was farming. Um, so I, I sort of set my sights on an aerospace or aeronautical and astronautical engineering degree. I was able to get into the University of Illinois. And a year into my undergrad program, I was incredibly fortunate to fall backwards into an internship opportunity with NASA. Mm. And it landed me at the uh, Langley Research Center in southeastern Virginia, which I had never heard of the name Langley Research Center and come to realize that the, the, you know, the importance of that particular institution. It was the first federally funded research institution in this country. It was founded in 1917. The, the institution was built in 1917 as part of the original National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics. And, and it really began the federal government's foray into, into applied science, engineering science, and investing in technology. And this goes back you know, to 100 years ago now. Um, so my formative years in college were split focused between academic studies on the University of Illinois campus and central Illinois and figuring out I, I don't want to stay in central Illinois, I want to go somewhere else. And then uh, being raised by uh, really second, third generation research scientists at Langley Research Center and understanding the research side of the NASA mission. And uh, it all added up to by the time I started my career as a full-time engineer, graduated uh, I was passion-driven by technology uh, for satellites, satellite structures in particular, and I didn't really know where my engineer, where my career was going to take me, but I just really wanted to dive into this deep-dive investment in the applied science of engineering for large, large space structures. And that's the, the first 20 years of my career was doing that for NASA, initially as a hands-on research engineer, and then eventually kind of managing programs, overseeing activities. And then at the midpoint of my career, for a lot of reasons, I felt a little bit of an itch to do something different. Uh, my wife and I at the time were living in Los Angeles. I was working at the Jet Propulsion Lab, still working for NASA, but had, had uh, taken an assignment at the Jet Propulsion Lab and mm. made a decision of maybe a gutsy move. I don't know, but I was just interested in trying something different. We, uh, we left JPL. We moved to Colorado. I took on with a small business. I was a sixth employee. And uh, I decided to experiment with the world of high tech from the perspective of small business. And that was 20 years ago. And in the last 20 years, um, I've, I've worked with it either in a, in a, as, a, as a staff employee or as a consultant. I've worked with about 25, more than 25 small high tech businesses, primarily along uh, Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico front range. Mm -hmm. uh, but also a little bit East Coast, West Coast. So it's given me a very broad perspective on technology from the, from the seat of small startup businesses. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, most recently with, with Rocor and now Redwire. And so it's been quite a journey. I couldn't have begun to think that this is where my life would take me. I still fly little airplanes. Uh, Do you? My, passion, my okay. weekend and evening passion is to fly, fly little planes. I don't live on a farm, but I I do live in a private air park in uh, Colorado where I get to uh -huh. my, my hangers right next to my house and I get to go pop the hangar door and go flying kind of like grandpa did in the farm. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, cool. years that's, so, that's, that's pretty cool. What kind of plane you got? Um, I have a 1955 Piper Pacer, which is, it is so reflective of my personality. 
It's not sleek. It's nice. not fast. No. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenging airplane to fly. It's a tailwheel airplane that just requires a bit of stick and rudder skill. And, um, and I love it. I love it. Every moment I'm in that airplane, I, uh, I enjoy the experience. It's kind of like riding a snowboard or doing yeah. something else. It just takes a little bit of skill uh, alongside of the intellectual side of it. So, yeah. Can you do, and can it, you do all the maintenance yourself? Can you, can you fix most of the stuff on it? I do. I spend probably, well, fortunately, my community, we have a lot of certified FAA certified uh, aircraft mechanics that can sort of sign off on work. But I do a lot of it myself. For every hour I fly, I probably put two hours of time turning wrenches and fixing things. I mean, it's a 65-year-old airplane. I'm a 60-year-old pilot flying a 65-year-old airplane. So we both of us need maintenance. <laughs> hey, you look like you're in pretty good shape. You look good for your age, by the way. You look good. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, yeah. you know, the key is yeah. don't stop moving, man. Don't stop moving. That's don't right. Stop That's right. That's right. That's right. So you, you're married. Did you have kids? Are they raised? What's Did, the story there? Yeah, I do. Got my wife and I have two, two sons, uh, 16 and 18 year old boys, both of them. And so I came to kids kind of late in my life. I was going to say, uh, I was going to say, yeah, yeah that was, yeah. that also keeps you young. That also keeps you young. <laughs> uh, my uh, oldest son just graduated high school. He's uh, he's a budding, uh, he's an auto aficionado. He's uh, he's on okay. his second Audi turbo sports car. He <laughs> rebuilds them himself. He's uh, he's quite a, quite a sharp auto guy. And then our younger son, 16 year old, he plays top tier hockey as a 16 year old goalie. He, Last year he played for a club in Indianapolis. This year he's playing in Las Vegas for a club. Wow! So, wow. Okay, so you exactly. do a little traveling. Do you take your airplane and fly to the events? You and your wife fly. To, that's pretty cool. Yeah, isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? Yeah, he's, he's like, he's like, yeah, my dad's flying in. And all the rest of the kids are like, huh? What do you mean, like his own plane? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fun. Yeah, uh, that's I mean, pretty cool. because you know, he he gives me a built-in reason to fly, and so there, are, therefore, I don't really complain about how much money we're spending on hockey. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. So, so when you started working for those smaller companies and things, when you moved to Colorado, is that when you kind of got the entrepreneurial startup bug? Is that when that kind of yeah. started building a little? Yeah. And, and I'll even go back and tip my hat to my dad. My dad was a okay. small business owner for 40 years. He ran a construction exactly. company in my hometown and really the option for me, if I was going to stay in, in central Illinois was to take over his construction company. I and see. I worked with him for seven or eight years. I learned a lot about how houses go together, but I also decided I didn't want to build houses for the rest of my life. Okay. But I, I learned from him a, a lot of really good basic uh, ideas about small business. And um, mm -hmm. he, mm -hmm. he taught me the importance of a face-to-face -face agreement, of a handshake, uh, of being honest and, and, you know, being true to your, your spirit and your character. Right. And, uh, you know, working with people that you like working with. Uh, get yourself to a position where you're you have the ability to make the choices of surrounding yourself by good people, uh, taking on contracts with people who you want to work for, who you want to, who you feel committed to, and so honestly, those threads of small business entrepreneurism were in me from a young age, just having okay. seen it, my dad, and understanding his his um, you know his talent for it. So when I came into the small high tech business, I, I'd say that that was sort of the foundation. Those are the foundation blocks of my ethic as a small businessman. Uh, as an entrepreneur. Um, and I've always been, you know, compared to a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurism, I think, is a, is a, a set of qualities. Um, and when you, when you sit next to an entrepreneur, it's, I would caution anyone, don't, don't try to paint all entrepreneurs with the same paintbrush. 
but appreciate that being in a small business environment, being driven to make new things happen in the business sector requires a lot of different skills and passions. And so in my experience in small business entrepreneurism is that I have certain of those qualities that I think I'm, I'm good at, I'm gifted at, I've got a vision for. Um, and then I, I naturally don't have the strengths in other areas where, and for me, that's just been the formula for finding good, good business partnerships. Right. Um, Chris, right. Pearson, Chris Pearson and I are, I think, perfectly complementary to one another. Chris mm. is the consummate salesperson. He is the, the perfect face of a company. Um, and he's, uh, he's a gutsy guy. He's, I'm, a, I'm honestly, even though I fly planes and whatnot, I'm a pretty conservative guy. Um, I, I fly safely. I think about business. I think about plan B all the time, sometimes plan C and D. Being a technologist, it, it grounded me and being a NASA technologist where, you know, failure is not an option, the classic NASA statement. Uh, I've always been grounded in the idea, you know, have your best plan in place and work it hard, but have that second plan there. And so it makes, I'm intrinsically a more conservative minded entrepreneur, uh, being paired with someone like a Chris Pearson, who's a very gutsy guy, willing to roll the dice a little bit, not, not crazy, but yeah. willing yeah. to go a little bit further risk-wise than I would be. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. pairing, you know, cause you want that balance. So oh, yeah, for sure. long-winded answer to coming into the small business sector, but I was I, I was attracted to small business because of what I, you know, the freedom that I saw it bring to my father's professional okay. career okay. and um, never had tried it myself. And I thought, maybe I can do this. We'll see. Um, and then how'd you meet time, Chris? Yeah, how'd you, how'd you meet Chris? <laughs> At a bar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I figured. I figured. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the common, the common, the, the maven, the common collecting point that brought a lot of the elements of leadership together at, at uh, Rocor was Doug Campbell, who was um, one of the co-founders of Rocor, okay. who was uh, the original CEO of Rocor until about three years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He brought me into the mix and he also brought Chris in the mix. So it was really through Doug Campbell that I met Chris. Doug had met Chris through previous business relationships. Okay. Um, okay. And then when Doug, when Doug decided to leave active management of Rocor, he stayed on as our board of director chair for a number of years. But as you may know, of course, he also runs Solid Power, another right. rather right. rather successful small business in the Colorado Front Range. Yeah, so, right, right. He uh, he was doing, on Doug, Doug, Doug was on. He was on the Rider Flex podcast. Doug was, yeah. So he was yeah. he was great. So he knows. So you knew Doug, and so Doug started working to kind of formulate a team. Were the original founders you, Doug, and Chris for Rocor? No, technically the original founders were, were Will, Will Francis and Doug and uh, a, a guy named Greg Freeberry, who's no longer with the company. He had his own private consulting company. And at the very kind of within the first year or two, uh, interests in, in the way Rocor wanted to go forward were kind of diverging. And so Greg made the decision, we made the decision, or Doug and Will made the decision to divest Greg from the company to buy him out, basically. Okay. Okay. And then... Um, and then I came on board, and then Chris about a year later, and then we brought wow. Heather Kulahar in uh, about three years ago to do operations. Chris Shaw to do our financial work about two and a half years ago. Yeah, and the band just kind of started rolling. Uh, Heather was on the podcast as well. She was great as well. So, and and uh, let me ask you. So, so as Rocor started moving along, 
was there always a plan to sell it or be acquired or were you guys thinking hey look we're just we're just having fun building this thing and whatever happens happens was, was there a master plan or it just kind of developed yeah great question i think a lot of entrepreneurs get really excited about the startup and post startup phase and they don't think much beyond that but from the very beginning we were thinking the bigger plan for rope war i you know the way it's played out uh, is one of several scenarios that we had entertained, but even back, back back to the very beginning, we and the reason we were thinking the bigger plan is that if you just look at the reality of the supply chain, the way it's structured in the aerospace industry, small businesses by the time they're at the somewhere in between the fifty and hundred person level, they really struggle to get past that growth point. There's almost a yep. uh, there's a it's access to capital is the is the fundamental limitation to growth past about a hundred person company. Uh, in, especially in the aerospace supply chain. And it's true in other supply chains as well. But so we knew at the very beginning um, that by the time we hit somewhere between 50 and 100 employees, that we'd be hitting a pinch point with cash, with access to capital. Okay. None of us are billionaires. I mean, if we were, okay, it's different for Elon Musk, right? He can just uh, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> he can take it from zero to a million. That's fine. But none of us are billionaires. So um, we knew that that was going to be an important point. And we started looking at scenarios as far back as three or four years ago okay. when we were about a 25, 30 person company because, because what we were doing in the market space, we'd already validated. We knew that we could sell um, our product service offering. We knew that there was a thirst for it. We were, you know, we were uh, back to the sales question, our sales conversion statistics at that sort of 30 to 40, 50 person company size, we were converting something like 85% of our bids, we were converting to contracts. Wow. That's, okay. the, that's the level of success that we were having mm, mm. Uh, at that stage of the company. So, you know, the, the Kool-Aid was selling. We, we, gotcha. we, we weren't worried about whether or not the Kool-Aid was going to sell. As an entrepreneur, you know, the first thing you worry about is whether or not Kool-Aid is going to sell. Right. Once the Kool-Aid starts selling, then you start worrying about how do I make more Kool-Aid? How do I get bigger? And <laughs> right. we had already been thinking about that you know, somewhere in the 50 to 100 person realm, we'd be needing access to capital. We started looking at different scenarios. What we, what we were, frankly, what we were hoping to avoid was uh, just an out and out sale to a tier one aerospace provider, a, a large Boeing or a Raytheon. And the reason for that is that we felt like the business that we were building is a bit unique in the supply chain. And we wanted to keep the agile, fast moving, you know, fast, our time frame from contract close to hardware delivery is on order of half to a third of a typical industry average con time frame. So we're, we're delivering flight hardware on a 12 to 18 month contract to delivery time frame, which is pretty fast for the uh, satellite industry. And um, we knew that if we sold to a big prime, their likelihood is over time that we, you know, we lose the ability to do that. Gotcha. It's just sort of inevitable as you get, become part of that big prime mentality. So we, we were looking at other avenues for uh, bringing cash into the company. <clears throat> and um, what we found with Redwire was, <clears throat> it was almost a hand to glove fit. It was an amazing opportunity that I hadn't even conceived of three or four months earlier, but it just fit the need that we had for access to capital perfectly. And I think what we offered as a business was a perfect fit for what Redwire was looking to bring into their portfolio of companies. 
Okay. So, okay. All right. That's and so t- tell the listeners real quick. Now is probably a good time. Why don't you just give the um, you know three minute uh, elevator pitch for Rocor, you know, <laughs> and just to make sure everybody knows what we're talking about and what Rocor does, and then and then go ahead and follow that up with with Redwire and what the bigger picture is there and what they do. If you don't mind, go ahead. Yeah, you bet. And if I can, let me let me zoom out from both Redwire and Rocor for a minute and kind of give okay. you a, my okay. Mark's version of the macroeconomic state of affairs in the Great. satellite supply chain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am, you know, I'm so 40 years into a career in aerospace and I'm just incredibly lucky that I'm that at this point in my career, I'm sitting in the middle of what's really transformative. The satellite industry is transforming itself. And uh, it's, it's reinventing itself from the outside in and the inside out. From the outside in, we're seeing billions of dollars of money flood into the industry uh, that we didn't see 10, 15 years ago, coming primarily from the commercial private sector, looking to use satellite constellations to provide services, data services primarily, in a way that uh, satellite constellations have been used in the past. And it's everything from you know the digital globe, image acquisition, you want to see real-time imagery on your Google Maps, you know, from a satellite. Now I want to see, I don't want to see six-month-old imagery. I want to see last week's imagery. Please, can yet. you fix that? Can you, guys, can you guys fix that next week? Because I, I, yeah. I would yeah. love to see real-time satellite photos. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, Go ahead. Well, that's where we're headed. And it's not going to get fixed next week, but that's where the world is headed. We, as a, as a culture, we've got billions of people that are insatiable. We'll all pay a large monthly fee to have access to an ever-increasing quality uh, and, and lower latency rate on data. That's just where we're going. And so the, it's created a whole new set of pro formas and business opportunities for the satellite manufacturing, engineering and manufacturing industry. And, you know, we saw, we were seeing the beginnings of this as early as 20 years ago with Digital Globe uh, and things like that. We're seeing it come in, in waves now, things like, uh, um, OneWeb and, and uh, of course, uh, Blue Origins, you name it. They're just all over the front page of all the trade magazines. Mm-hmm. So that outside-in influence where the industry, the satellite industry is now being looked upon to provide capability and capacity that it never had to provide, you know, you know thousands and millions of more data bytes per day and a mu- wider range of data per day than what the industry ever had to provide before. And now what that's doing from the inside out from the supply chain perspective is no kidding, we have to be able to engineer things on a um, tech refresh schedule that's you know, starting to look a little bit like you know, personal electronics. I'd, I'll live with this phone for about two years, but in two years, I'm gonna expect some new capability. Right. So we're going, the industry is going in that way, not every aspect of the industry, but there's a huge driving force in the industry that's, that's setting the table for for rapid, uh, high-performance driven, you know, component level engineering, satellite system engineering, system operations, all those things are really coming to fruition right now. And that's the macroeconomic backdrop that was already in place six, seven years ago when we when we launched Rocor purposefully in this direction to be a supply chain partner for deployment systems, uh, deployable apertures, um, whether it's an antenna or it's a solar array to gather power. That's the, those are the critical components of a satellite that make it functional. You know, everything is packaged up tightly. You launch it, and then all of a sudden, boom, I pop out an antenna, boom, I t- or two or three antennas, pop out power gathering, pop out deployable radiators. 
the deployable appendages are what really ultimately define the, the capability of the bus uh, to, to a first degree. So we we launched Rocor in that very specific performance engineering market niche. We're going to do a better job uh, in, in terms of high performance and quick turn time on development of antennas, solar arrays, uh, deployable radiators. And then right alongside that, we started, we started three, four, five years ago getting into some additional satellite subsystems like power management uh, because we're putting more power through the bus, thermal management alongside of power management. Um, so that, that really was our pro forma from the beginning. We knew we had an industry opportunity. We knew that if we could bring some goodness at the component, you know, technology provider, you know, widget and gizmo ideas, we could come up with some good, solid ideas for how to do advanced antennas and solar arrays. We, we felt like the industry would want that. And that's back to what I was saying. By three years ago, you know, we were closing 85% of the deals. Um, and that was just reflective of the, of the thirst in the industry for that kind of Kool-Aid. Was the money pouring but, in from, from, from VC or PE or angels or family offices or where, where, where's most of the money pouring in? Most of the investors, where's that coming so, from? So um, until we sold to Rocor, sold to Redwire last fall, Rocor was completely self-funded. So bootstrap funded. Wow. We, you know, the, the, the team of founders were able to put a little bit of money in to get things going. We were primarily a lot of the money that came for early growth and, and also to build our products came from the federal SBIR program. We are, I, I'm proud to, to, to show Rocor's story to the federal government every day and on the weekends because we demonstrate, I think, what the spirit of SBIR was supposed to be about. You get smart people with good ideas. The government puts seed money behind some of the, what would normally be, you know, IRAD money. So you can develop the technology, you can build up your workforce, build up your infrastructural capability at the company, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we were also uh, successful in getting some um, economic development grants from the state of Colorado. The Colorado Office of Economic Development International Trade gave us a half million dollar grant about six years ago that was really transformative for us. It helped us build uh, production scaling manufacturing cell that we needed for a commercial contract, yeah, which helped us get that commercial mm -hmm. contract. So we were able to put those pieces in place, a little bit of founder money, um, a lot of grant research money from the federal government, some right. economic development money from the state of Colorado. Bottom line, we were able to get the company grown to last year. This time last year, we were um, at about uh, 60, 50, 60 employees, debt-free um, with a, about a 15, $20 million backlog of business. And just we really were in a good position to then take outside capital in for the next wave of growth, which is again, where we kind of felt like by the time we hit 50, somewhere in 50 to hundred range, we were going to be needing that. And sure enough, we're going through our second facility expansion now in two years, facility expansions are expensive. <laughs> hiring, hiring staff ahead of the need on programs is expensive. Right. So enter stage left red wire. Um, yeah. And this was a business deal that we closed in, in October of last year and that we were working on for about a four month period of time, going back to about this time last year, you know, early midsummer last year, we were starting to talk with Redwire and the Redwire investors about an interest in Rocor. And um, that transition went off and, and it's been, it's been, a, you know, it's, it's been for us, it's been what we needed to kind of feed fund that next wave of growth. And that, that deal's officially done, closed. The books are done on it. Books are done on it. Yeah, we closed that deal 
in uh, October of last year. So Rocor has been a part of Redwire, owned wholly by Redwire since last October. Um, we still sort of wave the Rocor flag a little bit. It's now, it's, it's really not the name of our business unit anymore. It's, we are a Redwire, um, but we use it because of its uh, brand equity. And okay. so it's sort of becoming, it's evolving. The use of the name Rocor is sort of evolving right now into becoming synonymous with our sort of our uh, engineering uh, practices, our engineering services, and some of our products that we sell back into the uh, supply chain for the satellite industry. Did Rocor just add an element to what Redwire was doing? Did, did it complement it? Was that a new service and provider? And and then what, what does Redwire do overall? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So... Um, two, about two years ago, going back to about two years ago, um, a, a group of smarter people than I, who were thinking about the industry in the same way that I am, or I should say richer people than I, <laughs> I haven't met them, so maybe, maybe we're equally smart, but um, richer people than I, um, were looking at the aerospace supply chain problem the same way that we were, Procore was. In other words, okay. they were realizing that the satellite industry was going to be transformed, that there was going to be new business opportunity, especially in the middle market, if you will, where it's the componentry, the, the high performance componentry that'll make, you know, constellations of satellites work. Um, and that, that there was a private equity firm um, that was already deployed, had already deployed money on the aircraft, the aviation side of the aerospace industry. And they were looking for a play on the satellite side. Okay. And uh, so they got together uh, they brought more investors in. It was a private equity fund that brought more investors in, and that fund launched Redwire. I see. And Redwire was launched as basically the, the business front to a private equity fund in um, early 2000. I want to say it might have been late 2019, and coincidentally, it was right around the time of COVID. But astonishingly, even though we went through a global pandemic last year, Redwire the equity fund in Redwire acquired seven business units, including Rocor. Within, we the, within, within 24 months? Within 12 months. <laughs> so 2019, so 2019, a bunch of investors got together. They're going to dominate this space and they start gobbling up. Uh, they start gobbling up companies, Rocor being one of them. I Correct. was, by the way, just so you know, from a from a commoner's uh, view, right, watching from a distance on LinkedIn and stuff, I open up LinkedIn. I'm like, damn, they bought another company. Holy shit. These guys are growing pretty, pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that's the result of, of, you know, a lot of high net worth equity investors saying there's a play here in the middle market right. for satellite right. industry. And the keys were the same as the keys that we had already kind of unlocked for the Kool-Aid at Rocor. Mm. Agile development, you know, bringing new technologies into the marketplace, uh, doing development cycles that are, you know, that are quicker in general. At the same time, though, being able to build out and, and build capability and build credibility uh, to a standard that the defense classified industry wants. Because while commercial space is pulling and wanting, you know, a new cell phone in two years, um, the defense classified industry is doing the same thing. They're also gotcha. basically saying, OK, great. Now, what can I do with SpaceX capability? What can I do with, with OneWeb capability? So Redwire was launched with private equity money to go and find specifically companies around the supply chain, this, the lower tier of the supply chain that allows to kind of aggregate and build a middle market uh, critical assets provider to the industry mm. that can go, at, go fast, and, but go at, cap go at scale. 
And so Redwire now is the agglomeration of seven business units and that, that's Adcole Space in Boston, Massachusetts that's been around for almost 50 years. They are the known providers, some of the highest performance uh, navigational instruments, so star trackers, sun trackers that have been flown by NASA, the DOD, uh, all the big you know, missions have flown Adcole instruments for almost 50 years now. So Adcole was the, one of the first, the first acquisition, Maiden Space in Jacksonville, Florida, which is, you know, built its own unique brand for bringing new on-orbit servicing, assembly, and maintenance capability, kind of the next generation of space robotics to allow us to build more infrastructure in space. So Maiden Space was the second acquisition. Um, Deep Space Systems in Littleton, Colorado, they are a bunch of smart people that had spent time in Littleton, in, uh, Lockheed in Littleton, and then jumped off to do critical assets for human flight and also um, non-human flight as well. They've got camera systems on the Orion program. They've got a number of critical components flying on high, high dollar, high value missions. Uh, then Rocor was acquired in October. Shortly after we were acquired, um, another Littleton company named Oakman uh, Aerospace was acquired. They do, they're mostly a software company. They do mission planning software. Um, they, they actually provided some mission planning software to NASA for the most recent Mars mission. LoadPath was acquired. They're an Albuquerque-based engineering services company that also has an office in Littleton. And LoadPath, uh, gosh, they, they touch a lot of the different pieces of this puzzle. Um, they do a lot of work on deployment systems uh, like we do. And so they've, they've been a great partner company to have. We've already done a lot of resource sharing between us and LoadPath. And then most recently, we, we acquired uh, Deployable Space Systems in Goleta, California, north of Santa Barbara. And you've seen them in the news recently and Redwire as well. They're mm -hmm. the developers of the IROSA solar arrays that are just now repowering the International Space Station. Wow. They're a, a late wow. in life upgrade to the satellite power system or the space station power system. Is this, um, is this a move by Redwire now to collect these companies and then go and do an IPO and, and go public? Or is it, I don't know if you can talk about that. Is that, is that, is that, I don't know what the plan is. <laughs> you are, you are on it. You should be a, you should be a Wall Street. <laughs> so this is public knowledge. Um, we, Redwire hit the presses about two months ago with an announcement that we are working on a merger agreement with, um, Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Wall Street and how money okay, in yeah. the public sector works. Mm -hmm. uh, so from from bootstrap small business Rocor yeah. um, to to a private equity funded um, aggregation company Redwire, and now to public money on the internet on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, there's a process that's been uh, over the last ten years or so been pretty properly used in the high tech sector. It's getting into aerospace a lot called Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation IPOs or SPAC, SPAC IPOs, SPAC IPOs. Okay. And the way they work, the machinery of it is that um, <clears throat> another tranche of investment money is put into a shell company that is itself publicly traded. So they, okay. uh, in this case, our partner company are, that we're uh, merging with is called Genesis Park. It's already traded on the New York Stock Exchange. It's already wow. set up as a publicly traded entity. It has, pub, it has professional investors behind it and public money coming into it already. Um, we're, we're working on closing the deal. There's already press out there that came out about two months ago on this. Okay. The All deal, right. I think, as I understand it from the press, is expected to close late summer, early fall. 
when that closes, and everything I hear is that it's on track to close, when that closes, then Genesis Park as a, as a shell entity essentially evaporates. Redwire is the operating company. And then the, the, uh, the finances, the financial management of Genesis Park and Redwire become merged to, the, uh, to, the, uh, to satisfy all the needs for a publicly traded company. And that's what's gotcha. going on as part of the merger right now. But Redwire at that point will have a stock ticker on the New York Stock Exchange. We will be right now. We're about a 600-person company. By okay. years end, we'll be getting close to a thousand-person company, and we'll be publicly traded. So the big question I have then for you personally. So, so I'm guessing you had uh, units, as they call them, in uh, you know, in uh, an LLC or S corp or whatever you guys were at Rocor. I'm guessing you had stock or units, and uh, then Redwire acquires you guys. I, you know, I don't know how much you want to share, but for the listeners, because we have lots of entrepreneurs that listen to this show, that's really the yeah. base of the. Yeah. You know, they're, they're all going to be thinking, okay, so did he get the big payday or is it, or is it just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it just, is it just stock? And, and did, did you get yeah. units? They, okay. It's going to, it's going to pay off when you go public and you got, but you got a little cash when the deal is first done. Like, yep. uh, I'm, I'm guessing yeah. you didn't get several million because you're still working there. You're not retired. So I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, so let me answer the question the following way. First of all, I, uh, in working as a consultant, business consultant with entrepreneurs years ago, I always tried to encourage, especially, you know, the most brilliant minded engineer who comes up with this great idea, right? Oh my gosh, this is gonna set the world on fire. And you have a great deal of paternal and financial ownership over that for you to ultimately be successful getting that into the product space and to build a big business around it. And, and ultimately for you to get the financial reward from that. From the very beginning, you have to open yourself to the mentality that, while you own the whole pie, you know, when you come up with the idea, by the time this thing becomes incredibly successful, you have to recognize you're going to own a small part of the pie. You that's can't right. own the whole pie. But that's, if that's the right. pie is a thousand times bigger than what you originally, <laughs> you know, well, that's okay. Own one thousandth of a thousand times bigger pie. That's okay, math. The math still works out well. So when we launched Rocor, that's been, you know, that's been my gospel that I've preached to entrepreneurs for 20 years now. Um, and it's also been the gospel that I live by. I don't endeavor to own the whole pie. It's sense, senseless. It's self-defeating right. to try to be too selfish with Agreed. how much of the pie you own. Yep. <clears throat> Rather, you want to partner yourself with really talented folks that are complementary to you who also want a piece of the pie. Be reasonable about how that pie should be sliced as you go through these different levels of growth. And yes. in the end, there's more money for everybody. And this is exactly what we've experienced at Rocor. So when we founded Rocor, when we essentially we re relaunched Rocor with purpose about seven years ago, and we were aiming at about a 50 person company with the thought that somewhere between there and 100, we were going to need outside investment. We structured an incentivized stock option program for all employees, not just the management team, but all employees. We intentionally attracted people that wanted a little piece of the pie. That's a part of what they wanted. So, everyone that we brought to Rocor from employee number six to employee number 100 was brought in with a certain amount of entrepreneurism. They, they wanted to have a little skin in the game. And um, the, the mathematics and the formula that we worked for our ISO plan were pretty standard, industry standard. When we were acquired by Redwire, we had sort of an independent vetting of our employee ownership model because Redwire had been buying other companies, right? And they came in and they looked at what we did and they were like, you guys are doing it pretty cool. It's different than we've seen. Most other companies are owned by one or two or three people. We we 
built the company to be owned, you know, for ownership to be shared. So when we sold Redwire, everyone who had been here invested in their in their stock, uh, cashed a check. Not just me, not just Chris Pearson, not just Doug Campbell, but everyone cashed a check and a nice. fairly significant check. And it was, um, you know, we sized things so that it was a for any individual who had been here three, four, five years, we wanted them to be able to cash a check that was noticeable and impactful. You know, right. pay down your mortgage, buy a yep. new car, uh, nice. put money in your kid's stock fund you know, sweeten your retirement investment, whatever, Add, yeah. redo the kitchen. It was that, it wasn't a hundred dollar check. It was a noticeable, substantial nice. amount of nice. money. I've, nice. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that we were able to take growth board to a Great. acquisition Great. point where everyone, um, for the most part, everyone participated, was able to participate and enjoy that. Now Good. with Redwire, so, so <clears throat> those, you know, the stock interest in Rocor, we completely sold Rocor to Redwire. Well, in that sales, some of that came out in cash. Some of that came out in stock. stock we were yep. given the opportunity to trade yep. Rocor stock for Redwire stock. So I don't own Rocor stock anymore because there is no Rocor stock. Right. But right. I do own Redwire stock nice. now. Nice. And when that goes um, public, when that goes public, there's another check coming your way. <laughs> or, or I just let it sit on the stock exchange. Yeah. I don't know. But, but when we go public, and this is really important too, when we go public, now we also have the opportunity as a company Going back to the grassroots employee ownership model, we have the opportunity as a company now to um, to have stock options for the company off the yeah. publicly traded stock yeah. market nice. be available to the company. And that's very classic for publicly traded companies to have sort of discount agreements in place for, for employees and vesting periods, of course. So uh, from, a, from a personal financial perspective, yeah, it's been great for me. But it's also yeah. been great for everyone else here. Congratulations. Too. And, yeah, congratulations. Uh, and it's been, you know, it's, it's that way. If you have the ethic of, you know, let's get a really big pie going here. Let's make a big freaking pie. Right. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> let's not limit ourselves to a hundred person company. Let's go for a thousand person company. And that's where Redwire is going. And they don't want to now, stop at a thousand. Now, Red let me Wire ask you. To be, go ahead. Go ahead. Redwire wants to be in a position where we are as an, as an aggregate, as an accumulated business unit we are one of the most sought after middle market providers mm -hmm. of high value components for satellites and i think we'll get there in the next two or three years especially with the influx of money from the public sector that i think is going to come now let me ask you about a couple of challenges that happen when you're trying to put seven companies together in 12 months <laughs> uh, so so the first one is you know how's it going so far for for guys like you and chris you know, the, you know, you, you were at the, at the, at the, you know, the leadership table, making all the decisions, you know, you're not really having to answer to anybody, so to speak, right. You're, you're just, you're, you're in the leadership meetings. You're deciding to paint the wall green. That's what you do. You don't yeah. have to ask anybody. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. now all, all of a sudden you're, you're not quite, you don't carry quite the weight, you know, and you're, you're, you're quote an employee, uh, as a VP for Redwire, how's that going? How are you feeling? What, how are, how are you and Chris adjusting? Yeah, great question. And that's sort of the existential problem for entrepreneurs, right? I mean, yes. you become an entrepreneur because you're a little right. bit of a lone wolf. You right. got a little bit of, I need wide open pastures to run in. That's what <laughs> entrepreneurs tend to do. Um, yeah, and, and without a doubt, the minute you become part of a, a large, expanding, you know, multi-site, we're now seven sites, um, really eight sites, actually, because one of our business units has two sites. 
eight sites, seven business units that are kind of reorganizing themselves, mm-hmm. all wired about the same way, fortunately. I mean, culturally, there's not a lot of drift in the culture. You go from site A to site B, you know, we're, all, we're all pretty much, you know, okay. coffee drinking. We're all coffee drinking, excited, space geeks that are, are used to a small business environment. And they like, we like to take risks and go fast. And that's what makes Redwire, I think, as a bigger company, a bit unique. Uh, the okay. fact that we've come together pretty recently uh, is sort of an advantage because, and, and the fact that we came together under an umbrella company that didn't, it wasn't in existence two years ago is an advantage. Mm-hmm. So we're not having to, if you will, work up against a lot of inertia okay. uh, that, that you would, that a small business might otherwise have to deal with if you were to be acquired by Raytheon, for example, or, or any other, you know, pre-existing large company where, okay, from now on, it's going to be the Raytheon way, whatever right. that is, right? right. Um, you know, there certainly in the in the couple of years, Redwire has, from an operations standpoint, has started to coalesce operational functions at the headquarters level, and we're trying to get more uniformity across the business units. And so there are some constraints being put in place at the business units. Well, I know you did it this way last year, but we'd like yep. to try to do it this way because that'll right. lean towards more, you know, uniformity. But right, you know, right now, those are all the subject of conversation around the, the board table, right? So all the business units that are here already and all the presidents of those business units, including Chris Pearson, have a voice at the table. And okay. um, it, in the end, what, what we're endeavoring to do is to kind of it, I use a little bit of analogy of the United States. Redwire is kind of like the United States. There's a federal, you know, centralized element of governance and mm-hmm. continuity that we want to establish and mission and vision. Right. Uh, but the individual business units are still uh, being encouraged, frankly, to maintain okay. uh, not an autonomy, but maintain whatever is important that, so that they can continue to be uh, a, pri- a pro- product or a service provider that's value added to the industry. Because the reason Redwire came together is this unique market opportunity, supply chain opportunity. If right. we over processize all the business units then all of a sudden we we're not making the right kool-aid anymore there there's a sensibility at the at the redwire board of directors level that that you've got to allow the business units the local uh managers to manage in the way that they understand the market wants so there's a you know it's creating i think um sort of a layered culture, if you will, a little bit of a micro or tribal culture that still resides in the business units. It's reflective of the legacy business and the way that we like to, and we found that we can relate to our customers to provide them what they want, as well as how we do employee development. Um, and then the, the, the broader culture of, of Redwire, that's the collective. And they're not, they're not at all inconsistent. Uh, okay. In fact, there's a great deal of consistency. We're all about moving fast, solving hard problems. Everyone is a bit entrepreneurial. Um, so, so far it's, it's okay. working out. It's an amazing <laughs> experiment in, in coalescing small entrepreneurial yes. minds. You know, we'll see the next few months where we transition into yep. a publicly traded company and those changes will probably bring issues that we'll have to deal with, but right now oh, they will. Yeah, they will. We got a yeah, lot of smart I mean, people talking about these things and we've got a lot of motivation as a collective business to, to not hand, you know, not handcuff ourselves in, in Byzantine pro- business process that doesn't help at the end of the day, doesn't help deliver product to our customer. 
Right. Yeah. You know, I was watching from afar as I watched you guys put all the companies together and I was watching Redwire start to gobble them up. And I thought to myself, you know, this is going to be awesome because they deliver great products, great service. And there's a hell of a lot of smart people in all of these companies. And so all that's great. But, you know, you put that many teams together that that quickly with cultures and, you know, they are human beings and there are some egos involved in different places. And I I was watching thinking, okay, their biggest challenge over the next 24 months, quite frankly, is just going to be making sure that everybody's on the dance floor together and moving along. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and, and Steve, you, you know, so the truth is I don't have to work. Anymore. Yeah. Right. 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 You're yep. I was um, wondering, did you, did you, did very you agree to, a, yeah, a, a, very did you agree to like a, but a I love it. Sorry. Sorry. I go ahead. It. I, I, you know, I, I haven't been working for 40 years just because I need a paycheck. I mean, right. um, I decided a long time ago, I didn't want to, you know, farm or build houses. I want to do something that I was passion driven to do. And I love the satellite industry. I love the engineering side of it. I also love the people and organizational problem side of it. And uh, culture, it just it is central to all those things in my mind. So I'm, I feel incredibly lucky right now, personally, that I don't have to work but I love to work. And right. now I've been given this opportunity to be in the middle of something that's, I've never seen anything like this in the aerospace industry. Right. I've never seen this approach to aggregating a middle market company and trying to retain, have the basically a small business feel and a practical, not just words on a page, but practically speaking, have these business units still function largely as sort of those entrepreneurial, fast paced, um, highly motivated small business units. And I, gotcha. I, I think we can do it. I mean, there's a, there's a path to doing it that, you know, time will tell over the next several years, whether um, encroaching bureaucracy snuffs that out. <laughs> but I, I'm very encouraged that all of the leadership at all the business units, as well as the leadership at Redwire, and most importantly, the board of directors leadership, Genesis Park, and everyone that is basically calling the shots is pointing in the same direction. Everyone right. wants this to happen this way. So I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, whatever little part of that I get to play in over the next two years is going to be fun because if we're, you know, if we're successful at what we're trying to do, it's going to be, um, it's, there's a great deal of, uh, great deal of pride that we'll yeah. all take in, in having kind of driven a new stake pole in the ground in uh, the middle market of the satellite industry. I think other companies will start to look at how we're doing what we're doing and say, oh, man, that's probably yep. the way we should be doing it. Um, let me ask you, I want to ask you a couple of questions a little bit outside of Redwire, especially especially since I have such a smart guy and a, and a NASA guy on the, on the podcast. So I want to ask you some, some commoner, what I call commoner, interesting uh, questions outside of the business just for a second. And by the way, for the listeners, redwirespace.com, redwirespace.com, or rocor.com r-o-c-c-o-r.com and then you can also find mark loves for people to send him linkedin messages so that the, they can try to sell him stuff and so you can connect him you can connect with mark lake on uh, linkedin as well mark can i ask you a couple of questions just out of curiosity because i got you on the phone uh, how many satellites are in space right now roughly any idea and that's an awesome question i wish i knew the answer to that i, I you know it's it's tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Okay. I don't think we've hit hundreds of thousands yet. Um, but where we are, we are definitely at a hockey stick moment in terms of proliferation of satellites in space. 
Okay. Uh, you're seeing, you're seeing uh, my, my brother who lives up in the mountains of Steamboat Springs about a month ago uh, texted me one night because he was wondering what the heck was going on. They were sitting on their back deck and he saw, he saw this daisy chain string of satellites being launched. It was part of, um, part of one of the constellations. I know I've forgotten which constellation launched, but they, they dispensed uh, 30 or 40 satellites out of one launch vehicle. And of course, when they dispense, uh, and they're building out of one of these low Earth orbit constellations. They're throwing 30 or 40 satellites on the trajectory of the launch vehicle, and they're kind of in a trailing, you know, tra trailing string like, uh, you know, a chain of pearls or whatever. And then over time, they start to space themselves out along that trajectory to give global coverage. Mm. And we're seeing those launches happen monthly, if not weekly now. So we're at a hockey stick moment at the industry level, which is, again, is part of the reason why from an inside out supply chain perspective, there's so much business opportunity here for companies like Redwire. Um, we will be, yeah. yeah, we'll be, we'll be seeing densities of satellites. Um, a lot of, another way I think of it is if you look up in the daytime sky and you look at how many commercial airplanes are flying overhead at any given point in time, if you're near a population center like Denver, you're seeing a lot of them. Yep. Well, we're, we're closing in on that moment in time where if you were to take that arc sector of sky up further into low Earth orbit, mid-Earth orbit, you'll be seeing that many satellites uh, pretty soon in that arc, they... arc sector of sky. So the, so the satellite, it's almost like air traffic control problem. Satellite operators, constellation operators are very much up against the challenge of making sure that the okay. constellations are flying in free space, that we're minimizing collision. We're having to now engineer satellites to deorbit at the end of their useful life. Uh, Rocor has provided deorbit products to satellite providers where they had to show the FCC that within three years after end of life, boom, they're going to um, slow down due to atmospheric drive and come in. So we're having to clean up the satellites that we're not using. We're having to design mission operations so that we can deal with the congestion. Um, and it's, it's a problem. It's not going away. Again, people want data. So we will solve that problem of Air traffic control, space traffic control. Okay, okay. I always, I, yeah, I always think about that. I'm like, how the hell do these things not run into each other? By the way, you just uh, you just brought up a uh, ancillary business opportunity there, right? You, if you want to like get a get a get a boat and like go out and collect satellite parts that fall into the ocean and repurpose them, there you go. Somebody can start a business. <laughs> uh, I, I was wondering. I was wondering about how they keep from running into each other. Uh, somebody at one point told me that uh, the reason you don't have any crashes up there is because it's just so vast that there's just not a, a the chances of one of them hitting each other is super slim. But I don't I don't know if that's true. Well, that that is the that is exactly the flight control mentality that that we operated satellites on until about ten years ago. Okay, and to use. The air traffic industry is a similar example. Up until the 1940s, there really wasn't continent-wide air traffic control. But mm -hmm. by the 1950s, when we started flying, you know, DC-4s and DC-6s cross-country, then all of a sudden we had continent-wide air traffic control to maintain spacing. About 10 years ago, uh, th there have been collisions, unplanned collisions between satellites, um, the Iridium constellation lost one of its satellites because it collided with a Russian upper stage mm. that happened to be intersecting orbit and they hit it tens wow. of thousands of miles an hour. So, you know, we've had wow. multiple of those. Um, does all state, so, hey, uh, does, does all state cover that? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, it, interesting. You just, yeah, most satellite providers do insure their assets, and I, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming that orbital collision is part of the insurance policy. Yeah, certain, certainly insurance to get it in space, so launch insurance has always been there. Oh, but okay. I'm going to guess that orbital collision insurance is part of those policies now. <laughs> Lloyd, Lloyd's of London probably makes money insurance. Yeah, costs. right, right. <laughs> but but um, so where we are now as an industry from a space con space traffic control perspective is there are several entities that are starting to weigh in. First of all, providing data, tracking data. NORAD, the, the, the U.S. government has tracked satellites for many, many years. There's NASA has a database. Uh, they also have a debris management database. NASA also does modeling for trajectory changing. So satellites are going to deorbit and come in. NASA plays a role in helping predict that better and helping engineer satellites to come back. So there's bits and pieces that are starting to assemble themselves. We haven't gotten to a point as an industry yet of having a coalesced space traffic control network that's global. I but okay. I see it happening in the next five to 10 years. It, it, it will need to because of the numbers because of the numbers okay one more last question i know we're almost out of time i gotta ask you this because you're a space guy and this is really going to step out a little bit uh last last question is there life on other planet planets mark are we gonna are we gonna discover life forms out there before me and you die or are we gonna we're gonna miss that are we gonna be dead before that happens what, talk to me just a little bit i'm just curious on, on your thoughts well of course there is there's no okay. question there should be no question in anyone's mind that there's life elsewhere in the cosmos. The mathematics of the situation, the science of life, the generation of life, make it a, a foregone conclusion that there's life elsewhere. So we shouldn't continue to wrestle with the question of whether there's life. The question of when do we find it when is really the, the real question of the day. And um, in my time with NASA, I had a great deal of pleasure to get to know NASA's only Nobel laureate, a man by the name of of uh, John Mather, he's at the, the Goddard Space Flight Center and he won the Nobel Prize for basically proving the Big Bang Theory. Um, okay. Back in the 1980s, he was able to fly a mission uh, that measured the cosmic background radiation from the Big Bang and proved that in fact, we did start from some massive event. John's in his 70s now, he's a Nobel laureate. He's also a science laureate for NASA. He's the lead scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, which mm. will be looking further in, into space and further back in time than any other observatory we've ever had. James Webb launches, I think, yet this year or early next year. And John's only goal left in his life is to prove that life exists somewhere right. else. Right. And yeah. uh, I think he's going to do it. I think I John Mather yeah. at the Goddard Space Flight Center is going to do it, whether it'll be from a James Webb measurement or whether it'll be from other science measurements that are going on right now. I don't know. But even, mm -hmm. you know, the Mars explorers now we're seeing water. They're talking about seeing the potential of prebiotic life on Mars and some of the mm -hmm. chemistry that's coming back from the Mars uh, surface sampling missions. Um, so it's there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder if it happened. Yeah, I want it to happen before I before I'm gone. I got. I, I'm I, I do too. I, well, John Mather is older than me. He's older than you, and he wants it before he, the end of his life. So okay. let's have faith, in John Mather. Right. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. Thank you very much. You bet, Steve. It's a pleasure for me. I hope your your listeners enjoyed the story. <laughs>